Welcome to Holteras Presents, a brand agnostic interview podcast that seeks to objectively highlight the happenings within the world of diagnostics. And now, your hosts, Rich Thayer and Mickey Yade. Hello, this is Rich Thayer, Managing Partner at Halteras Associates. And this is Mickey Yurde, the founding partner at Halteras Associates. Today, we are here with David Kern. David is a regulatory expert. There have been a lot of changes in the regulatory landscape since the pandemic here in the United States. And of course, we also have the implications of the new IBDR regs in Europe. Dave will be talking about both of these topics today in our interview. We learned a lot in our discussion with Dave. He's got uh, his ear to the ground. He knows what's going on and he understands the implications for the industry. And now our interview with Dave Kern. Hello, Dave, and thanks so much for participating in our podcast today and we really look forward to talking with you no oh, thank you for thank you for having me i i, I looked over your uh, your previous guests and i'm not sure i fit into that category but i appreciate the of offer course. it's quite the illustrious group you guys have talked to already so i appreciate being thrown into that that rarefied air we think that you are right there so <laughs> thank you very pleased to have you <laughs> thank you so why don't you give our our audience a, a bit of your background Sure, sure. So I have been in the med tech field for over uh, 30 plus years now. First few years that I was in after graduation, I, I ended up at UC San Francisco working in research laboratories um, and, and had the, the interesting first job of working in what actually was a, a dental research laboratory, but it was at the height of the, of the AIDS epidemic. So got to, to to work in a lot of different technologies and that all kind of prepared me for the ultimate transition to my first job in industry which was at Chiron um, where Mickey you and oh. I <laughs> first met and uh, it was it was about three weeks before the the Chiron Cetus uh, merger so <laughs> thrown right into the mergers and acquisition world of, of industry right after that um, spent seven and a half years at Chiron working product development and moving into program management there, working on the HIV program primarily, uh, the viral load testing that you're very familiar with, and then left there and went to work at Affymetrics where I was for about seven years, first in program management and then later in alliance management, helping Affy with their diagnostic partnerships and, and working with partners like Roche and BMRU to get tests onto the AFI platform, um, worked with Roche as part of that initial Cytochrome P450 test that they got cleared on the AFI platform. Kicked around a couple of smaller startups after that, um, worked for a friend of yours, Greg went at Neuromolecular for a while and then moved over to XDX where I got to work on the first one of the one of the first LDTs that got cleared by the FDA, their their allograph um, heart transplant test, when they had a substantial reduction in force that included all of product development, an old friend from Chiron, Maya Tomei, gave me a call and said, "Hey, why don't you come work for me as a consultant in regulatory?" At which point I said to her, "But Maya, I don't know anything about regulatory." <laughs> At which point she said, "Oh yes, you do." you'd be surprised. And like a scene from the Bourne identity, I was actually very surprised myself that I knew as much about regulatory as I did. So that started my regulatory career about almost 15 years ago now. And I worked uh, as a consultant at Morocco for a number of years. Then when Maya sold the business to Illumina, I was at Illumina for quite a while, had her job uh, when she left in 2017, early 2017 made it through a budget cycle, remembered why I hated working for large companies and went back to being an independent consultant, which I've done for five and a half years. So um, I've been very fortunate with my consulting business. I've, I was doing the math today and uh, had over 130 clients in over 15 countries over the last five and a half years. So I've been very fortunate and it's been a lot of fun and very exciting and not a day goes by when I don't wake up and say, um, I'm enjoying what I do. So uh, you're very lucky. Yeah. Thank you. That's wonderful. And it's been a pleasure working with you on several of those projects as well. 
Likewise. Likewise. So, Dave, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the FDA stepped up its emergency use authorization program, going so far as to provide draft templates for submission and including frequently revised SARS-CoV-2 specific guidelines regarding performance expectations. When you look back at it now, how how successful do you think that program was and how do you think it'll be deployed in the future if we need it again? I, I think it was mixed for sure. Um, and I think the FDA would probably admit to that, at least privately. Um, you know, this is the first time we've really flexed the EUA program for something really, really big. It's been, you know, things like Zika virus and and other smaller, smaller-ish situations in the past. This was the first time when the agency was really tested and that process was tested. You know, I think there's certainly some lessons learned from that that I hope the agency will take in the future, one of which being the transparency was a serious issue during the whole pandemic. Um, You know, they originally started out having LDTs in under the tent, and then they were outside the tent, and then they were back under the tent. All the while, you know, they were changing the rules a little bit on what these tests needed to be. First, it was anything. Then it was, well, we really need molecular tests and, and, and sensitive diagnostic tests. And then it was, well, we really need things that are point of care. And then it was, well, we really need things that are, you know, over the counter. And, and, and they, you know, kept changing things. And while the templates were, were very helpful, and I think, you know, that, that, that was a great addition. Part of the challenge, I think, that we were all facing during that, and I had a number of clients that invested a lot of money into clinical testing and other things only to have the agency say, oh, wait, nope, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to do a big lab test anymore. We're now moving towards point of care. So we're kicking everybody else out. Um, That was frustrating for a lot of people. Um, So I'm, I'm hoping that in the future, the FDA will kind of look back at all of that and say, okay, what do we really need in a pandemic like that? If we have, God forbid, have one again, what do we really need to do in the way of testing? And, you know, the good news is I think, you know, similar to like the, the, the moonshot program during the sixties, a lot of interesting technology came out of this that, that the FDA got exposure to that I'm hoping in the future will make this a lot more streamlined and will help the agency make those decisions early. Have you seen other changes uh, that have occurred post-pandemic, if we can call this era now post-pandemic, in, in even other products as they come before the FDA that were influenced by this EUA program? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think there's a couple of things there. I, You know, I think one of them is the FDA itself, um, I, I think it renewed their paranoia of, of, of LDTs, to be honest with you. I think you know, they, they, they kind of threw the LDTs out on their own for a little while and then got very nervous about what kind of test results were being reported by some of those LDTs during COVID. And, and so I think a lot of what you're seeing now, the, the renewed calls for active regulation of laboratory developed tests, FDA's movement towards aligning with 13485, the ISO standard for medical devices, mm-hmm as well as there's been talk, rumors mostly, but there's been talk about the agency adopting the Medical Device Single Audit Program or MDSAP to kind of help with workload, but also I think as a way of qualifying laboratories and other manufacturers of, of IVDs to, you know, basically some sort of standard. And there's been guidance documents around um, this. So I, I think a lot of what's come out of of the COVID pandemic has been changes in the way the agency is is looking at LDTs in particular, but IVD development in general. And they're, you know, the, the part of the push around the Valid Act and, and getting that mm-hmm. passed through Congress um, has, I think, been largely driven by COVID. The, 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 other, the other interesting development, I think, is this kind of rise in point of care testing. I've seen a lot of it. I've seen a lot of devices that were, you know, either based on 
lateral flow or other other technologies where you're taking a patient sample, either a, a blood sample or a saliva sample or something like that, and doing either near patient testing or direct to consumer testing. And I think that's going to continue. You know, I think there's a little bit more comfort to some degree with the agency on these types of tests, provided the scientific validity of the markers is there. But I think that that's just going to continue to grow. And I think there's going to be a lot of value there in the future for industry. Um, as, and I think that's a direct offshoot of, of COVID. That's interesting, Dave. You know, staying with the, the topic of point of care and FDA, it appears that the agency is perhaps somewhat more comfortable with home use authorization for diagnostics, having cleared, you know, somewhere around three dozen tests, including molecular diagnostic tests and some requiring uh, instrument readers or smartphone applications. Looking ahead, what do you see will remain the key requirements for clearing a test for home use by FDA? I think the number one thing, and, and this is something when I um, I, I teach a class at UC Santa Cruz in IVD regulatory. And, and one of the things that we always talk about in that class is this, this notion that's under the um, International Medical Device Regulators Forum, or IMDRF, this, this notion of clinical evidence and the three pillars of clinical evidence, which are scientific validity, uh, clinical validity, and analytical validity. That key piece, one of those three key pieces is that scientific validity piece. And I think what will help to drive more home use tests is if there is demonstrated scientific validity. So even beyond the clinical validity, this concept that, yes, this is a marker that is recognized as being clinically relevant within the scientific community, not just, you know, hey, we ran a study and it looked pretty cool. Um, so I think that's going to be a key driver for these at home or near patient tests in the future. You know, the other part of that, and, and, you, and you brought it up, is, is the kind of the rise of smartphones and, and that type of technology where now you don't have to put a, a laptop or a desktop computer next to the testing device. You can have a phone. And I've got clients that have you know, small boxes where you, you know, you put a sample of blood on it, you stick it in the box, and then everything goes through your smartphone to a cloud, gets analyzed, gets reported back, goes to your doctor, whatever. I think that'll make it, you know, there's, there's certainly regulatory challenges around that. And I think the agency is certainly concerned about cybersecurity and, and patient um, health information and, and how you keep all of that secure. Um, but at the same time, I think that's also going to help drive some of this because it makes near patient testing a lot simpler. And one of the areas that the FDA in particular is focused on over the next few years is this idea that we need to do a better job of getting healthcare in general and testing in particular closer to patients in, 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 in underserved areas. So rural communities, you know, places where access to healthcare and access to diagnostic testing may be difficult because it requires a, a long drive in a car and an expensive test, and maybe they don't have the health insurance for it. So I think the more that these type of tests, whether they be panel tests for uh, different blood, you know, just your general blood testing, or whether it be for infectious diseases or therapeutic monitoring or something like that, I think they're, they're going to continue to rise. And while there are some challenges there, I think the agency realizes that this is the future. It's not, it's not the big diagnostic instruments that we're all used to seeing in CLIA labs. It's, it's, it's this kind of in the doctor's office at Walgreens type of testing. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. That was well explained. You know, with those ideas in mind, what medical or health conditions uh, do you believe might benefit most from having, you know, a new focus on home testing? Well, I think the obvious one, especially after COVID, and I think the one the agency is probably most comfortable with, and, and in particular, the microgroup, which is, you know, have, have been at the forefront of COVID and is probably the most comfortable with, is infectious disease. So, you know, not only respiratory panels, which I think more and more you're going to see that type of testing 
be either near patient or urgent care doctor's offices or, or even at a Walgreens or something like that. Um, but also I, I could see where you could have uh, some other types of tests, for example, and this is probably going to take a little more comfort level with the agency, but, you know, maybe the, the future of pharmacogenomic testing, whether it be either monitoring a patient uh, that's on a specific drug to make sure that they don't have any sort of adverse events associated with it or for dosing purposes or something like that. That could be something where, again, because this could be near patient, the information could go from their phone to the cloud to the doctor's office who could then get some some sort of a report and look at other vitals coming from you know, their watch and, and a few other sources, they could then make determinations as to whether or not, you know, there's an adverse event in this person's future, or there's, you know, some, some issues with dosing or something like that. So that's an area where I think, and I'm, and you're starting to see a little bit of that, where there's some interest in, in those types of tests, certainly wellness testing, um, particularly for like pregnant women, things like that. And then just as a way to kind of address, you know, surging pandemics or, or other epidemics, you know, one example right now that I can think of is syphilis in this country, which is quietly just going through the roof. Yeah. Um, and, and the ability to, to be able to inform patients, hey, that thing you think is a rash is actually something a bit more serious than that. And you need to come in and, and get tested. You know, that could be a way to not only help that patient more quickly, but also to kind of stem these pandemics if people have access to that information without having to go to the you know, local hospital and get tested. Yeah. Well, certainly over-the-counter and home testing segment is exciting for the diagnostics industry. I look forward to seeing how that evolves further. You know, shifting gears for a moment, we've heard about the new revised IBD regulations now in place for the EU. What can you tell us about the key changes in these regulations and what do you anticipate the impact will be on the launch of new diagnostic products in the EU? Yeah. How much time do we have? Um... <laughs> The, every regulatory conference I've been to in the last five years, I would say probably half or more of the docket of topics is either MDR or IVDR, which are the new regulations in Europe for medical devices and tests. I, I can tell you that, you know, one, one story that I've shared with people anecdotally is I, I have a client that's in Europe that has CE marked tests on the market already that is considering bringing their new tests to the US first because they consider it easier. So that should kind of give you some idea of how much things have changed in the union. It, it, it's made things incredibly complicated and it's making for a lot of challenges. And I think there were a lot of manufacturers, I know my former employer being one of them initially that were kind of, well, if we don't acknowledge it, maybe it'll just go away. But this requirement that everything be IVD, for example, so no more putting your IVD assay on an RUO instrument, the whole thing's got to be IVD now. So that certainly has had a significant impact. Um, you're seeing a significant impact in the area of companion diagnostics, where, for example, if you have a test that is on the market that is CE marked, um, and, and it is measuring a particular marker. Let's say it's measuring uh, KRAS, for example. And you want to use that for a clinical trial for a, for a companion diagnostic, possibly in the EU with, alongside a drug. If it's in a different disease type, so let's say you know that, that KRAS marker was for... I don't know, colon cancer or something like that. And now suddenly you're shifting that to some other type of cancer like prostate or something else. You have to submit essentially the equivalent of an IDE to have that test used. And oh, by the way, each competent authority within the member state where the testing's being done for that trial is going to want to review it. 
because they don't have the database system in place yet where everybody can kind of get access to that information. So test manufacturers working with drug companies are having to submit multiple packages to multiple countries for review um, just to get these tests in as clinical trial assays for a companion diagnostic. So it's really changed the, the environment greatly there. I think one of the estimates I saw was that somewhere around 75% of the tests that are currently on the market are probably going to come off the market in the next few years because wow. between the, the post-market commitments and the lack of grandfathering under the regs um, and, and just the requirements that you demonstrate scientific validity as well as clinical validity and and all of your analytical testing that you've already done. And then you've got to maintain that and you've got to you know, update that periodically for these tests. A lot of manufacturers are like, you know, this test is making me half a million dollars a year. It's not worth it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so, so I think one of the things that we're going to see is a lot of those tests just coming off the market because nobody has the, the wherewithal to keep them there. Makes me actually wonder if the UK may now wind up becoming the favorite area to bring new products to market. Uh, I understand as part of Brexit that they're not adopting, at least yet, IBDR and will maintain some form of the IBDD regs. Yeah, and, and it sounds like the UK is, is trying to some degree to kind of weave in between um, the old directive and the, and the new regulations. So there are some pieces that they're kind of keeping. Um, for example, you know, the, some of, some of what's around the clinical trial testing and, and making sure that all of those things are, are registered with, with MHRA before going forward. And, and there are, you know, other elements here and there, but they're also, well, if it's, you know, if it's FDA cleared or if you've already got a CE, they're kind of letting those tests into the market. They've also got the equivalent of a breakthrough program there that will allow new technologies to get on the market faster. So I think the, I think the Brits are trying to weave some sort of middle ground there where they, they don't stifle in innovation, but at the same time, you know, have a bit more regulatory authority than they had under the old directive. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the, you know, one of the challenges within the UK is like a lot of other places that regulation is lagging behind. So it was supposed to come into effect this month and now they've postponed it for another year. So I think they're, they're still tweaking it. And again, manufacturers don't really know what the final result's going to be. Um, they've got inklings and hints, but they don't really know what ultimately is going to come out of that. Yeah. Interesting. Dave, you know, it just occurs to me with the IBDR that's there, you know, what's happening with uh, the UK and your, what you mentioned earlier that FDA is considering adopting, you know, use of the um, ISO 1345. I wonder if we'll wind up having the US be now the attractive market where um, <laughs> because of the market size, but because the regulatory process has become easier than other parts yeah. of the world. <laughs> it's a really good, it's a really good question. And I think one of the things that the, that the FDA is definitely looking at, and particularly in light of COVID, they have to change the way they do business. It's just, they just flat out do because they, it, it I mean, yes, it was a big deal, but a, big ramp up in their workload completely broke the agency for two years. I mean, you couldn't get Q submissions through, you couldn't get 510Ks through, you could get companion diagnostics and anything COVID related through. And that was kind of it for, for the in vitro diagnostics part of the agency. So, and, and then inspections didn't happen, right? So there, there's a backlog of inspections that didn't happen for two years. They've got a shortage of inspectors too, oh, by the way. So I think the agency is now looking at, and there's been huge turnover at the FDA. You know, I think the COVID workload coupled with a lot of other political issues and stuff like that have just forced a lot of people to just, you know, four or five years in, they're like seeking greener pastures and in private industry. So I think the, the reality that's kind of facing the agency, whether they'll admit to it publicly or not is, You've got a growing number of tests, both laboratory-developed tests and diagnostics. 
you've got increasingly complex tests, you've got to come up with a way to regulate this stuff that doesn't include just a massive, I mean, if they actually do enforce LDTs, God help them. They don't have the work. They don't have the staff to do that. And, and I think they know that. So, you know, part of the valid act, the structure in that has been, we care about the high risk stuff, the companion diagnostics, NIP testing, anything that's basically, you know, there's a, there's a life or death health decision, if you will, associated with it. We want to regulate those actively, whether they're laboratory developed tests or not. The rest of it, particularly some of these like, you know, 20, 30 a year, almost orphan tests that get done as laboratory developed tests and hospitals and other places. Let's put some sort of certification process in there, whether it be ISO or MDSAP or some hybrid of that. Um, and, and let's, let's regulate those tests differently. You know, the, the moderate and low risk tests, let's, let's regulate those differently with almost as not quite a self-certification process, but a, you know, a, a lighter regulatory touch than what you're seeing with some of these other things. Is there a possibility of, of just building up a bit more CLIA in the process currently used in LDTs to compensate for this problem? I mean, it has been discussed. The problem that you run into there is the same one that you run into with FDA, which is manpower. You know, so you could try to staff that, I guess, through CAP, but, you know, and you could put some of that structure in place there. And it's certainly been floated by a lot of the LDT manufacturers is like, well, why don't you just beef up CLIA? I, I think the, you know, the age old problem that you get into there is that you've got a structure that was designed for you know, basically maintaining quality within laboratories and LDTs were always supposed to be these like, well, it's not really quite an attractive enough market. So we're going to keep these under LDTs because no device manufacturer would ever want to take on the cost and burden of, of, of putting those out. Suddenly that's gone to an industrial scale and the agency is trying to grapple with healthcare decisions being made millions of times a day based on tests that they have no oversight over. Mm -hmm. And, and so how, how HHS balances that out ultimately, I think will be interesting. You know, honestly, a lot of it's been left to the payers at this point in this country. They're, they're probably the ones that are making the, the healthcare decisions by just choosing not to pay for tests that they don't think have clinical value. Very interesting. Do you have any advice for new companies and old companies alike uh, in diagnostics, given these changes? I think early on in its, in its life, the, the MDSAP program, the, the medical device single audit program, was kind of a, a, a wishful thinking process <laughs> for a lot of people. Um, gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could have one audit a year that covers five or six different countries, major markets. Um, but then Europe didn't really pick it up. The U.S. has been kind of half in, half out. Um, Canada is the only one that's adopted it to date. If, but, but I think what, and again, this is me speculating to some degree based on conversations that I have with people and such, but I think if there's anything that, that, I would say is good advice for any company, whether it be an LDT manufacturer or a traditional device manufacturer is you might want to seriously consider ISO 13485 and you might also want to seriously consider MDSAP. Um, at least bringing your processes up to those standards because I could see the day coming. You know, for example, the agency has already announced that they're going to align the QSR to ISO 13485. So they're already working to, to make the regs in this country look more like the ISO standard. Hmm. That's kind of a big deal um, because it's an acknowledgement on their, and, and to me, I, I don't think they would do that if there wasn't a reason. Mm -hmm. And I think that reason is they're trying to, to come up with a pathway for manufacturers 
that's an alternative to the traditional, we'll just follow the regs and submit, um, that may include ISO. You've already got notified bodies going in there and auditing. You already got, you know, them now looking at submissions in the EU. Why not just expand that and say, hey, you know, oh, by, while you're at it, why don't you do a 510K too? So that's, again, that's wild speculation on my part. It may be wishful thinking at some part, point because, I, you know, it would certainly make all of our lives easier if you could put together a filing for the EU and the US and Canada and other places. It's always been the dream, but. Rich, I, I suspect a lot of people don't know much about MDSAP. Yeah, I, I, I don't think so. It almost sounds like, you know, back to the old harmonization, right? Um, yeah. As, uh, across SRA's topic that's been going on for quite some yeah. time here. Yeah. What do people have to do to be prepared for that? It, it's a good question. So, so the, the, the medical device single auto program got started, oosh, I want to say it's been seven or eight years ago now. And it was, a, it was originally um, the, big, the big five, if you will, unless you count the European Union. So it was US, Canada, Australia, Brazil, and Japan. And what they did was kind of came together as regulators and said, these are the things that we all agree are important. And then they all had a list of, oh, by the way, these are the other things that we, that we personally consider important that maybe they didn't agree on. So they came up with a set of auditing guidelines, and it's been a completely voluntary program with the exception of Canada, where you would have a notified body like a BSI or TUV or somebody like that come in. And once a year, they do an audit to the MDSAP auditing guidelines. And it is a big deal. I mean, I, I lived through one of these at Illumina and they, you know, because Illumina was a big company, they bought in three auditors and spent a week there and they kicked every tire on the quality system. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's a big deal because if they find anything and it particularly if they find things that are super important, and, and that they consider to be critical issues, they can elevate those to the competent authorities. So for example, if they find something that they think is really, really egregious in your quality system, they are obligated to then report that to the FDA who could then come in and do a for cause inspection or any other country for that matter. So, but on the other hand, it does have the advantage that, you know, at least in theory, all of the countries have agreed, yes, these are the things that we would expect to see and, and expect to see at a high level of quality. And if you hit all of those and you pass and you make it through your MDSAP, then theoretically that should count to your you know annual inspections with the US and Canada and Japan and Brazil. And if the EU were to adopt that, which there's been hints that they might, um, it could make everybody's life a lot easier because instead of having, you know, four or five groups coming in every year to inspect you, you only have one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and then the, the, the hope has always been that that would then make it easier for a lot of companies who have, you know, pharmaceutical partners that want to come in and audit or other partners that want to come in and audit. You know, if you could just show them your MDSAP cert and say, Hey, if it's good enough for these countries, it should be good enough for you. Then you could, reduce your audit burden, which could be significant in some cases. I mean, with Illumina, we had, feels like we had an audit a month um, from some external party or another. So that's, that's always been the dream and the hope of MDSAP. Um, I know that South Korea was seriously considering it at one time. I think Brazil, if they haven't adopted it already, they're, they're very close. Um, so it's starting to pick up some momentum, but um, I think if the U.S. were to adopt it, that would, you know, we tend to be the leaders in these, like it or not. And if the U.S. says it's a go, I could see a lot of other countries saying, okay, it's a go for me too. Very interesting. So Dave, FDA has recently cleared some microsampling devices for professional use. These devices use yep. small arrays of microlancets or similar approaches, along with a small vacuum to collect much larger volumes of blood, maybe 300, 400 microliters. 
than you can get with a finger prick. So how do you see the use of these devices evolving and for what diseases and health conditions and in which use settings do you see it? I mean, I think it, it, it falls in quite nicely with some of the stuff we've already been talking about, particularly, I think, point of care. You know, this is a lot, these devices have the advantage of being a lot easier to use in a near patient setting than drawing a tube, spinning it down, pulling off plasma or serum, and then, you know, going off and, and doing your testing. So I could, I could definitely see them being used for, for example, um, routine blood testing, you know, where you can get a, an adequate volume of of blood from a patient that you could run a panel of, you know, routine analyte testing for, for, for blood testing in a more of a point of care setting rather than having to send it out to a lab and, you know, wait two or three days or more to, to get the results back. I think, I think the other, you know, obvious place would be, you know, things like, you know, some of the stuff we talked about with, with respiratory infections or other infectious diseases, you know, maybe, a lot of SDIs or things like that, where you could run a panel and, and you know, because you're getting a, a substantial amount of blood, you kind of avoid the, the Theranos paradigm of how, how are you possibly getting all that information out of a finger prick? <laughs> but at the same time, you're, you're still, um, you're still getting a, a fairly easy sample acquisition tool into the hands of either physicians or hospitals or other healthcare institutes. And, and I suppose if it got easy enough and, and straightforward enough to use, you could even use that, you know, in, at home testing, um, you know, particularly when you're monitoring patients that may have some sort of chronic disease and you require, you know, more than a, a finger prick of blood and they're going in every week to get their blood drawn and, you know, the hassle of, again, what, a lot of what we talked about before, getting it to people that maybe aren't normally in a position because of where they live or their economic situation to be able to go into a doctor's office or a hospital because maybe that's a, you know, two hour drive away or something like that. So being able to send a device like this out and, and have them be able to collect a sample at home or maybe have a healthcare provider collect it at home and, and even process it there. Um, it, it just, that seems like it's a huge advantage and it, it, it's in line with the FDA's mandate to try to get this type of testing and this type of healthcare to people that are underserved right now. And many organizations are actually trying to send phlebotomists to people's homes to collect which is right. not a simple thing to do and something that doesn't require a phlebotomist no. to collect would be right. quite as Well, and, and one thing that, you know, you talk about the impact of COVID, certainly just in general, the the shock to the healthcare system that COVID had and, and the burnout. You know, my wife was at UC San Francisco working in the regulatory group in the height of COVID. And the burnout of, of nurses and, and lab personnel in general and, and everybody that's, that was in that, you know, dealing with all of the challenges and, and the, the risks and everything there. A lot of people just said, it's not worth it. I'm going to go do something else. Um, and, and there's, you know, you can't, to your point, how are you going to send train and send out an army of phlebotomists? It's, you know, they're still facing the same challenges of having to drive to these people and get around and get the sample collected and get it back in time so that it's viable. Yeah. So I think more and more, it, it, these kind of collection devices and these kind of, you know, simple, easy to use point of care tests, that's, that's the future. I think that's where diagnostics is heading. I hate, I hate to say it because my former employer was all in on big, more, <laughs> the more data, the more everything you can get. But, you know, Mickey, you and I have talked about this in the past. Regulators aren't set up for multi-analyte, multifaceted, big data diagnostics. 
it's test result. You know, you got this, you got that. And, and that's where a lot of these tests, even if they're running a panel of three and four and all they're doing is ruling out, yeah. um, have a huge advantage. Yeah, it's, it's a big issue. It's a big issue. Yeah, and that's a really good segue to the uh, next question here. Um, and that's the concept of masking. Um, and by masking, I mean running some of these larger panels. Maybe it's a larger respiratory virus panel. Um, having the machine complete that panel, but only releasing certain results that were requested by the medical practitioner. It seems this is something that FDA uh, has endorsed. They've approved companies um, with this concept in their, in their uh, products. How widespread is this practice? And what should a diagnostic manufacturer understand regarding FDA's requirements for clearance of such assays using masking approaches? I mean, it's been around forever. You know, we, we had a, we had a, I, I remember when I worked on the, on the AFI platform with, with the Roche cytochrome P450 test, there were certain genes that Roche had on that microarray that the agency was not convinced had clinical validity yet. And, and that Roche had not demonstrated clinical validity. So we masked them. They still got run. It, you know, it was still part of the array, but the software basically said, nope, not those, and only reported out the stuff that they had agreed with the agency on. Certainly in sequencing, you see that a lot. I mean, you you run a sample through a, a Lumina sequencer, you're seeing everything. But Foundation Medicine, Garden, some of the others that are using sequencers and reporting out results for companion diagnostics, they're essentially only, only reporting out quote unquote, masking the rest of the information and saying, you know, this is the stuff that's FDA approved for a companion diagnostic, or this is the stuff that we got cleared under, a, you know, like a Memorial Sloan Kettering type clearance, where th these are the things that we're going to give you in the official IBD report. But then a lot of these labs will then take that same sample and submit a CLIA report alongside of it under what the FDA considers professional services, which is, oh, by the way, here's all the other stuff we noticed in your sample that aren't IVDs because we don't have any labeling around it, but nevertheless might be interesting to you, the clinician. So the concept has been around for a long time and it's all done by software. And again, it's, it's ultimately, what are you reporting? And that's number one. And then number two, are you not getting into any sort of issues with sample depletion or anything else where, you know, and this is probably more an issue for small volume than, you know, larger volume tests, but are you, are you not getting into an issue where all the stuff that you masked is competing out the stuff that you really care about? So as long as none of that's happening, the agency's fine with it and it's, it's largely controlled by software and you, you know, you do the normal testing that you would do and you're there. Very interesting. So we, we've wondered about how far this masking can go. Um, you know, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, there's been an issue with some of the assays that are out there that can do a large number of respiratory viruses or even other pathogens simultaneously. But most physicians don't want to order them, don't really need it. Is it possible to have algorithms where if it's not, let's say, SARS-CoV-2, um, flu A, B, RSV, it opens up the door, door to be something else, you know, the other things that are on the list. Remember back when Nanosphere was trying to do something like this, just, is that catching on more? Is it, are automatic algorithms going to be acceptable? I mean, where's this going to go? Yeah, I, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. You know, I remember years ago when I was at Illumina, we had a conversation with the agency that, that was intended to be an informal conversation with the agency where me and someone else from Illumina were going in to basically have, you know, a, a, a lunch meeting with this, somebody at FDA and their boss. And we ended up having the whole leadership team from Micro in this meeting, which I was not prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to, to some degree, that gives you an idea of how interested the FDA is in something like this. In other words, having a platform um, where you can, with a single sample and, and with the power of something like sequencing, have a number of different results that 
could get reported out on a, if not this, then this type of scenario. So, you know, you do the original set of, of, you know, five or six suspected pathogens. Nope, none of those. Okay, now you go down and you do that next level of analysis. Okay, based on what we saw in the sample, could it be, you know, something we don't know about, an emerging pathogen, or could it be something else? Um, and just running through that. And I know the agency um, has has expressed interest in the past of having some sort of a platform to do this. Um, it was something at the time that Illumina didn't want to take on. They probably are kicking themselves now after COVID. But um, it, it it is it, it's definitely an idea that I think you could you could have a conversation with FDA about or any other regulators because I think particularly after COVID they see the need for having something where you could start ruling things out, um, whether it be pathogens or yeah, yeah, that's probably the the area where I would say, you know, maybe maybe you're looking at certain mutations and certain, you know, maybe for for resistance to drugs or something right. like that. But, you know, it seems like it seems like infectious disease is tailor made for that. I think it would I don't know that it would make sense in other areas yeah. to the same. When degree. you have a complicated etiology, like in urinary tract infections and lots of different organs right. come up and then you see it's this one and now you do an AMR associated with that particular organism select exactly so yeah exactly yeah and and i could i you know i could i i could certainly see where the agency would be open to well you know here's this original here's this initial screening test that we're going to rule stuff out but then doing a deeper dive and maybe it's you know maybe it's under clia or maybe it's under um some sort of more general language from the agency around you know suspected pathogens, but um, it's a possibility that I I think is definitely worth exploring. And I don't think, I don't think FDA would be like, no, 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 that doesn't fit our model. At least, at least within infectious disease, it might get a little more complicated if you try to do that in other areas. But I think in infectious disease, it's definitely a possibility. Yeah. You could imagine, for instance, with the uh, increasing spread of tick-borne diseases uh, in this country, you know, perhaps that you strongly suspect, you know, you're exposed to ticks and it's not Lyme, you've got symptoms. So what could it be? And just, you know, if not this, that, as you point out. Yeah. And how, how do you, how do you differentiate that from other chronic diseases like long COVID, for example, which has a lot of those same, you know, profile that, you know, the Lyme disease does or other, you know, chronic. So, you know, if the patient comes in and says, I'm tired, I have no energy, I don't, you know, I've got headaches, whatever, the, the ability to just run a panel and say, not Lyme, you know, not long COVID, not this, not that, you know, that, that, to me is is what this masking technology you know could do and it, again it's one of those things where you would just and i think insurers would probably be happy with that model as well because they're not paying for 40 tests <laughs> if it's in that first group of five right i mean they're so you know you would only pay for the ones that you need but you could use the same sample potentially and just reanalyze that data. In the, in the not too distant past, it really wasn't even worth considering this because the cost for each assay was so high. But now as we're getting right. technologies that can give you more and more information from smaller and smaller sample sizes, this becomes possible to do in a health economic. It does. And then you've also, and then you will layer on that, you know, what's going on with AI and what's going on with the ability to take information from other parts of that patient's workup. So it's not just that single diagnostic piece, but, oh, by the way, their blood pressure's up and, oh, by the way, they're, you know, and you're taking all this information in um, and, and through these various software applications, you can kind of say, hmm, you know, this really is starting to look like X. Um, that that to me is is the kind of where I think you've got a lot more power in the diagnostic space. I I was talking to one of my clients recently who spent a lot of time at at NIH and and FDA in their career. And they were speculating that this is 
this is the rise of diagnostics that we've all been predicting for 30 years, that this is the era now where diagnostics will kind of start to surpass drugs and importance in healthcare, simply because, you know, the days of, a, of giving somebody a drug and it treats them, everybody equally, 100% done. Right. I mean, you don't see that anymore. You know, the, the fact that, that health, from a health economic perspective, for sure, diagnostics has the ability to really kind of fine tune and hone in, whether it be in, I mean, you're seeing it in cancer, but I could see it in other places too, you know, where you're treating infections and you've got antibiotic resistant bacteria. There's no point in throwing antibiotics at somebody if none of them are going to work. Absolutely. We've got a very interesting situation now where the latest generation drugs are the last line. And mm -hmm. organisms that are resistant to those drugs, you know, what are you going to do? And one of the things that they, they right. could do is actually look at some of the older drugs that these organisms may now be sensitive to again, because selective pressures yeah. hasn't been on them for a long time. Uh, but that means right. you have to have even a broader capability of looking at the microbial resistance uh, in these things that in the past would just be too expensive, but probably are affordable now. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. And I, and I could, you know, I, I, again, I think that, that that's where you're, you're going to see a lot more of that in a point of care setting too, because, and, and, and that's where I think a lot of the future of diagnostics lies in these rapid point of care or home use tests, because if you can go into a doctor's office or urgent care facility or something like that and said, man, I do not feel good. And I've got a fever and blah, blah, achy and all that. And they can run a sample there and not only tell quickly what you've got, but, oh, by the way, it looks like you might be resistant to A, B, and C without having to go, you know, send in a sample, wait, oh, wasn't that, no, that was culture negative, that was culture negative, okay, let's try another sample or let's, you know, try something else. To your point, you know, in the past, that was expensive and took a long time. And it was hard to compete with, you know, a Petri dish. <laughs> now you're getting to the point where some of these tests, I mean, I've got clients that they're, you know, they're, you're talking about a, a, you know, a few dollars to, to get a lot of information. That's, that's, and it's rapid. And, you know, you're talking 15 minutes to, to find out if somebody's got sepsis or not. That's hugely yeah. useful. And the first decision doesn't have to be uh, a broad spectrum drug. If it's fast enough, you can select right. the right drug right from the beginning. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the, the fraud component aside, Elizabeth Holmes was on to something, <laughs> which is probably why she got the investors that she did. Um, but I, I, I do think this, this notion of being able to do, you know, a broad panel of testing, whether it be for wellness or infectious diseases or pharmacogenomics or something like that in a, in a more intimate point of care or near pay, particularly, you know, as the population ages and it's harder for people to, to get somewhere, but maybe they can get to Walmart or maybe they can get to their local doctor's office. They don't have to go to some big fancy clinic somewhere. That, that feels like that's the future. That feels like that's where all of this is leading. You know, that the ability to use a small sample and, and all of the data analytics that, that are behind all of this. And that, that, that feels like that's where this is all heading to me. Yeah. I don't think it's like, hey, let's sequence everybody and figure out what they could possibly have. I mean, I, yeah. there's still, you know, payers are still struggling with what do I do with this? Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, and they're, Interesting technologies like volatile organic compounds, looking at the patterns of those, mm -hmm. which are more capable of interrogating very deep recesses in the body than people tend to realize. And, you know, right. if you can just keep developing new algorithms for that and, you know, it's the same test over and over again, in, boy, it becomes very inexpensive. And remarkably useful. Yeah, and you're, the the other thing that you're starting to see, and I've had I've had a, a few clients in this space of, you know, particularly when it comes to to mental health, which has been a 
terribly difficult field to do any sort of diagnostics in because you're basically like, it's, it's up to the physician or whoever's the, the caregiver to say, oh, that person's depressed or that person has this. And you're running through this set of largely clinical symptoms that have to, you know, and it relies on how open and honest the person is with, you know, now, you know, now they're starting to see markers for, you know, not just Alzheimer's and things like that, but also depression. And, you know, there's software tools that can run on your phone where that you, people can interact with. So there's a lot more of, I, I think that that's another area that you're going to see a big boom in the future is just mental health and how to deal with people either through blood tests or interactions with their devices or some combination of that. Yeah. Um, you know, and then maybe you've got some sort of test that's monitoring a patient, you know, based on, on the drug that you're giving them. Are they responding? Are they not responding? Yeah. You know, it's good to tie into their microbiome too. Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 you know, I think that, that would be, I know pharma's wildly interested in that because it, I remember back to the, to the days of, of HIV sitting in, in a conference hall somewhere listening to John Miller's talk about, you know, the work that he did. And, and up until that point, HIV viral load was like, so, and then he presents data that shows, you know, <laughs> ultimate clinical outcome, Kaplan, beautiful Kaplan Meyer curves, the higher your viral load, the worse your prognosis. Oh, oh. And then you could just see the light bulbs going off. <laughs> Of where people were like, oh, I can use this for a surrogate endpoint for my drug. I don't have to wait for people to die or get better. And I think, you know, to a large extent, that's what you're going to see with some of this other stuff, too, is the minute there's some clinical validity and utility that, that can be used for this to, you know, monitor a patient, whether it's minimal residual disease or depression or whether they're responding to a drug or what have you, I think that's, that's, that's the future. You're not just going to wait and see if somebody gets better. If you can measure something and determine that. That was a great collaboration we had with John all those years ago. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was was some of the most dazzling. I still, I still show that data in my class. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, this is, this is the value of diagnostic testing and, yeah, it was pretty special. It was cool yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think everybody's been chasing that type of test ever yeah. since. <laughs> a true clin- a clinical surrogate endpoint. You know, and I think I think it's I mean, the health economics argument that you make to payers on that. It's like, hey, you don't have to put somebody on some super expensive drug forever because look, we can show that yeah. it's cured. And we can show it quickly and accurately and yeah. yeah. Yeah, surrogate endpoints like that for HCV and HIV, um, the trials went from thousands of people over many months to look for the clinical endpoints to a few hundred people at the most, and within a couple of weeks, seeing whether or not the viral load dropped. That that those that correlation made that possible. Yeah, very cool. Well, Dave, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I think uh, it was a very interesting conversation. I think we learned a lot, and I think our our listeners are going to be very appreciative of the information you shared. Thank you. I, I, I really do appreciate the opportunity. And thanks again for inviting me. It's been been a lot of fun. And, and I, I've really enjoyed talking with you guys today. Thank you, Dave. This has been a very enjoyable interview, though I bet you don't hear that very often about regulatory topics. Holteras <laughs> <laughs> Presents is produced by Holteras Associates a U.S.-based bioscience consultancy that provides strategic and tactical services in the areas of diagnostics, medical devices, and life science research to clients of all sizes. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the episode are solely those of the individuals involved, and Holteras Associates is not responsible for any errors or omissions.
evidence or for the results obtained from the use of this information. The information provided in this episode is for informational or educational purposes only and is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Holterra's Associates would like to say thank you to this episode's guests or guests and thank you for listening to this episode of Holterra's Presents. Thank you.